you don't really know all the time how things are going to hit. And uh, 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 this service is, is, is beautiful and, and it hits different people in different ways. We had two people who came out of the service last, uh, last hour. Uh, one said, I've just been, uh, I've got new duty and he's going to go fly a different airplane up in uh, Northern California, which is super, super cool. And give thanks to God for, uh, for those individuals who've, who've sacrificed so much. And when the word comes down from above, hey, you're moving from New Mexico to California, you don't get to say, well, let me pray about it. You say, let me load my stuff and go. You know, that's a whole different thing. We also had a young man in church at 8 o'clock who kind of looked up, very clean cut, very muscular kind of buffed young man. He said, thank you for the service. This week I'm going to Africa and then Africa into Syria. And he's being deployed as a Marine. I'm proud to be an American where at least I know I'm free. And I'm proud, proud uh, for those who died who gave uh, their lives for that. What a powerful thing. Patriotism for, for me began, began at an early age. Uh, in first and second grade, we lived in a little town called Hartley, Iowa. And, and as a function of public education was then in 1970, in 1971, <laughs> we sang. We started with the pledges and then we sang. We sang, my country, tis of thee. And it didn't matter if it was hot and humid, and it didn't matter if it was cold and snowing. You got there, you knew, and you stood up and you sang. And, and, and when the choir sings that piece, I go right back to being a first grader in Hartley, Iowa. Back to being a little kid, back to not really knowing a lot, but knowing that we lived in a great, in a great, great place, in a great, great nation. Another piece of that maybe you've experienced if you've flown internationally at all. Last summer, I went on a, a, a trip to visit the work we do in Africa, and, and it was a 16-hour flight from here to uh, uh, Dubai. And you get off the airplane, and you know everything's strewn. The food is strewn. The Cheerios for the babies are strewn. There's just junk everywhere. And this brand new, beautiful Airbus A30 smells like a, a, a dairy barn. I mean, you're just like, wow. We gotta, and if you know, I kind of, you know, if I smell how this airplane smells, I got to get to a shower. But, but you get off in the airport in Dubai and you're like, wow, this is crazy. And different languages, different people, just a different mix of people than LAX or Orange County or wherever. And, and then you fly from there to Nairobi and it's a different story again. It becomes smaller, more intimate. You're kind of looking out. You're wondering how they're going to check all those bags and what's going to go on and what's in what and who's who and... Then you get back on the airplane in Nairobi and you fly to Dubai and you take a long nap in the airport and you get on that big A380 Airbus. And when you get back to LAX, you don't really care how it smells. You don't care how many times you've made a lap around the big cabin. You, you get off that airplane and you go, I'm home. I'm back. There's something in my soul that just kind of lets go, that says, you know, I, I don't have to be on guard like I was when I was somewhere not in the United States. I, 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 I don't have to look with kind of a wonder what's going on. I don't have to wonder if I can take care of myself. I, I, I know I've got a, a country that is secure and free, and, and maybe people feel like that when they travel uh, from America to their homeland and, and back, but... There's just something about it. I'm not sure I can quantify it for you as much as I can describe it. But I think you know 
what I mean. I think many, many, many of us feel that way about our homeland. The land of the free and the home of the brave. The best place to live, I believe, in the history of civilization. And it started 241 years ago this Tuesday with some guys gathered together who said, there's got to be a better way. And when they put pen to paper, these are some of the first words that they wrote. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. That whenever any form of government becomes destructive and of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or to abolish it and to institute new government, laying its foundation on such principles and organizing its powers in such form as to them shall, as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness. There's three pieces of this among many that really stick out to me. And the first is that there is a self-evident truth. There's stuff that you don't need someone to say, here's how it works and here's an empirical formula and here's the rationale for this. You just kind of look at it and you say, that's right. It is what it is. This is, this is how it works. And, and, and the, the, the writers of the Declaration of Independence felt that, that the truths that they were espousing were self-evident, having been influenced heavily by Christianity. They talked about a creator and that the creator made all men equal. Didn't matter if you were a landowner or not. Didn't matter if you were rich or poor. Didn't matter if you were black or white, male or female. What mattered was that you had been created equal, all people. And while it took America a while to figure out how to live with all people created equal, the rights of that that come from being created in God. We believe that at the core of our being, even though sometimes it's hard to live, live into that. Self-evident, created equal. And then that piece of unalienable rights. Man, do I like that. Unalienable rights. What's right for me is right for you. And it's right for me and right for you because that's the way God made it. And some of those unalienable rights are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And we have those rights just because we've been created by the Creator. Not because a government willed them upon us, not because a monarch says we can have them, not because there's a wall around our city and, and the defender says these are your rights, but because all people have access to these rights by virtue of being created by God, to life, to liberty, and to the pursuit of happiness. And so after 241 years, how are we doing? How are we doing? Well, we don't have a tank parked at the corner of Almond and Center, so we've got that going for us. We don't have to have armed guards at the door of the church. I did not have to send my PowerPoint slides to the government today and have them shake me down. I don't have to preach in fear like Dietrich Bonhoeffer did in Nazi Germany. 
There's some parts of living in the land of the free and the home of the brave that are wonderful. And this is among the best that we get to drive our cars and worship God and live out Christian lives as God has called us to do. And we do it with very little, if any, obstruction. The ideas that the writers of the Declaration put forward were monumental, land changing, uh, mind changing and nation building. What an incredible piece to be inheritors of unalienable rights. Jesus, when he preached in Matthew chapter 5, beginning at verses 43 and 44, which are in your bulletin, he brought a, a, a radical way of thinking as well. He, he said, there's a whole different way to live. And he starts in Matthew 5 and he said, blessed are this, blessed are that, blessed are this. And then as he works his way through his Sermon on the Mount, as he talks about how the kingdom works, about how people are, are put together, he, he gets to this piece, Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 and 44. I'd ask you to please read this with me. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. Wow. See, the, the way you would have done it is put a stick in the eye of your enemy and bear up under persecution until you can kill the person who's persecuting you. And Jesus flips this. He says... No, 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 no. If you're going to live in the kingdom of God, it's going to look like this. You're going to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And, and the hearers that day, you, you probably wondered, they thought, preacher, you got to be crazy. Jesus, we're not doing that. you got to be nuts. We're going to kill our enemies and we're going to hate those who persecute us because that's the way the world works. Jesus says, no, 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 not not with you. It's not going to be this way with you. There's a, a bigger, grander way to live. And it's harder, but it's better. I teased a little bit last night at the service about putting the Republicans on the right side of the church and the Democrats on the left side of the church. Be fascinating, huh? There'd be more Democrats in church than you would think in a Lutheran church. Honestly, I say that from the bottom of my heart. Sometimes they kind of keep their head down and say, oh, might be persecuted by those crazy right-wingers. <laughs> and the moment I begin to speak and talk about this, people say, oh, man, there goes our right-wing pastor again. He got his letter from the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. He's going to bring all this right-wing stuff in here. And... No. Sometimes I wonder if the polarity in the United States of America has gotten to a point where Republicans and Democrats who hold differing political viewpoints view one another as enemies. What you read and what you see and what you listen to might make that clear. If you're a Republican, you look at the tweets that the president issues and you say, man, that's great. He's putting it at him. And if you're not, you say, man, what painful things to read. And, 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 and if you're on the, the other side of that, if you're a Democrat, you, you look at that and you say, what a hateful thing to do. How could he do that? And, and there's this divide in America that just seems to be exacerbated. 
as instead of speaking to one another about ideas and philosophies and, and ways that things could be, we speak in contempt towards one another. As if Republicans are enemies of Democrats rather than all of us together being enemies of injustice, oppression, war, violence, human trafficking, the exploitation of children throughout the world. We want to be enemies with something instead of one another. And I'm not sure how you get back to a more uh, real conversation about what really needs to happen in the United States of America. It used to be that the church took care of that. The church stood up, the preacher stood up, they got in the pulpit, said, this is the way it's going to be. And there's generations of that. And it's not so much anymore that way. When you drove to town today, more than likely you drove from the outskirts to the inskirts or the middle of town. And you'll notice we don't have big parking lots like they do in suburban churches because people used to drive their horse and buggy to church at St. John's years and years ago. And they park them right along Center and Almond and, and they come in and do church. They had no air conditioning. <laughs> sure is nice. In the midst of World War I, the city fathers came to St. John's Orange and said, you guys got to change this up. They said, you know, we're fighting against the, the Germans, and you guys are German. They said, yes, we are. Wir sind Deutscher. And they said, you worship in German. He said, right. They said, your preacher preaches in German. Right. And he said, and you teach your school in German, and you do German customs and all that Oktoberfest and all that beer and all that stuff. People are going to think you're following the Kaiser and not so much America. Pastor Jensen, who followed Pastor Kogler, wrote a beautiful letter that Ken Schluter unearthed and talked about the place of St. John's in the city, driving culture, driving people together, providing all sorts of uh, connections in the community. So much so that they put a, a, over the beautiful granite cornerstone that, that is in German, they put an English cornerstone above it, and in our renovation, we took the uh, covering off and left it in German. There's much more, uh, much less of a threat of the German uprising than there was in 1914. <laughs> Think of the pull that is in the city. Our students used to go from our eighth grade into Orange High. And they became ASB presidents, and they became head cheerleaders, and they became the athletes who were recognized and awarded. And, and all the people, all the kids would go, and they'd go, oh, man, here's the St. John's gang again. Not so much anymore. Now in the middle of the city, but with a different kind of influence. Instead of calling me and saying, hey, we're going to redo our parking lot. Do you care? Is that okay? They send me a memo and say, hey, we are redoing the parking lot. It'll be Sunday morning. We'll be finishing it up. And out of courtesy to you, we're just not going to jackhammer until after your 930 service. Is that okay? And what do you say? I'm going to call down fire and lightning from heaven. I'm not going to do that. If I stand up and preach a sermon about politics and all the way things got to be, unless it goes viral on a YouTube thing or it goes viral on our website, the church doesn't have that sort of influence on culture the way it did two generations ago. And we've been moved from the center of town to the fringe of town. 
And so maybe loving our enemies and praying for those who persecute us becomes much more of a big deal and much more of an influential lifestyle than it is to sit and protest quietly. On a book I'm reading as I'm getting ready to finish up some school at Fuller Seminary, I'm working on a book by author Gabe Lyons, uh, and he quotes Michael Metzger. The book is called The Next Christians. It's, uh, I'm, I'm doing a, a program on lifetime leadership development, and this is talking about how to engage in the community. And, and, and I love this quote when I came across it this week from Michael Metzger. He said, when confronted with the corruption of our world, Christians ought to be provoked to courage and not offended and withdrawn. <laughs> you kind of get it? Isn't that kind of painful? You look at the world and you can take one of, of, of two stances to a degree. You could say, that's it. You punch me in the mouth, I'm going to punch you right back. We're going to get after it. Throw down. Let's go. Or there's another way to think about it and say, eh, if it's not fight, it's flight. And I'm out of here. I'm just going to build the fence around my house. I'm going to move to a, a state in the union where I can have all my guns and all my stuff and no one messes with me. If they do, then blah, 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 blah. I'm out of here. I'm done. Somewhere in the midst of those two is the sweet spot for you and me in the church. You see, if the church withdraws in the face of corruption of the world, then we are not what Jesus talks about earlier in Matthew 5, being the salt and the light. And if we say we're going to use the world's way to influence the world with politics and anger and fighting, then I believe we've lost our soul. So what do we do? Well, we stick with that Matthew 5 piece and we think it all the way through. Remember that Jesus was one who loved his enemies. And even from the cross, he prayed, at the one, prayed for the ones who killed him. Father, forgive them for they don't know what they are doing. We look at mankind in a different way than your basic pagan person does. We look at people as created by God and redeemed in Jesus Christ. A Jesus who didn't just redeem the ones he liked, but a Jesus who redeemed all people who suffered and died on the cross, not just for the sins of the right-wingers or the left-wingers, but, but died for the sins of the whole world. And in that death drew mankind unto himself. You and me and all included are in the, under the umbrella of God's grace and love. As Christians, we receive it by faith, by believing, like Abraham, like Sarah, like Isaac, like Jacob and Esau. We are connected to something bigger in our citizenship than simply the city of Orange, the county of Orange, the state of California, the United States of America. Our view and vision of who we are is first and foremost tied to Jesus who loved his enemies and prayed for those who persecuted him. First and foremost, you are a child of the Most High. And when you start there, you end at a very good place. You could be a breaker. You could go in and wreck stuff. I'm going to break this. I'll, I'll show you what I'm going to do. We're going to raise this church up. We're going to be a political action committee like you can, and we're going to break stuff. We're going to break down the structures. We're going to break down the politicians. We're going to break down the... And we're going to be mean and nasty. And every time somebody rises up, we're going to kick them in the teeth. Just wait. You'll see. We're going to be breakers. 
We're going to be people going to take pride in broken lives and angry discourse and all of those sorts of things. And I say we leave that for the Westboro Baptist Church and let them stand before the Almighty and we Lutherans do our thing not as breakers but as restorers. You see, being on the center of town and the center of culture bears one kind of responsibility, but it also cuts both ways. When we're wrong and we're breaking, then we reflect poorly the love of Christ. But being on the fringe of the culture allows us a different kind of freedom to speak, to act, to do, to serve. But it requires a different mindset than saying, we're the church, we're here, you will do what we say. It requires that we look that we look at the world in terms of grace over judgment. There are things that I just look at and I snap to. And it's part of just being raised the way I was. I look at the young lady bringing her child into vacation Bible school and she's all tatted up and I'm like, oh, sweetheart, you're so pretty. Why would you do that? And immediately I lapse into this judging piece. And I've got to almost consciously tell myself, Timothy, Mark Klinkenberg, you shut that down. That child is in vacation Bible school. That lady helped. She had the love of Jesus in her heart. Who cares about the tattoos? Most of which have a Christian connotation to them. See where I'm going? And as Christians, how do we expect people to live a Christian life when they're not Christians yet. So putting our expectations upon them before they know Jesus, that's being judgmental. As opposed to understanding that everyone has their different path to Christ and their different way of life. And we intersect them where they're at rather than where we want them to be. Restorers put grace over judgment and courage over reputation. We have a superior reputation. I can even call some of the bigger churches in Orange County and they'll say, oh, St. John's, we know you guys. They know us through some of the work we're doing. They know us because we've been around for 135 years. They, uh, they, they know us. How much of your reputation would you be willing to grow not by all the things that we say and about how great and how tough and how powerful and how rich and all those things we are. But if we talked about our reputation in terms of how well we served from the fringe in, how courageous would you be? How strong would you be? Would we be willing to go all the way with the foster care that we've talked about over the last weeks? Being sacrificial? in our service, so that the reputation of our congregation isn't one of being argumentative or right all the time, but that the reputation of our congregation is one of being gracious and serving. Because restorers put grace over judgment and courage over reputation. And restorers don't mind living <laughs> in a little tension. Tom Friedman wrote a marvelous book called 
uh, Thanks for Being Late, in which he highlights the speed of technology, the speed of climate change, the speed of educational reform, and connects it all to Minnesota. <laughs> it's a great book. When he got to the end of Minnesota, I'm like, you got to be kidding me. I'm turning this off. This is unreal. But I'm not sure you think about the tension that we live in, but, but we live in it, and, and, and to try to define it, I'm trying to figure it out. And part of it is this. That 10 years ago, tech went like this. And I went like this. I got an iPhone and apps and all that stuff, and I know how to use it, but I can't use it like my kids. And they won't be able to use it like their grandkids. So not only do things accelerate this way, but the acceleration accelerates. How about that? You started here, and that's not bad. But in the time you got to here, everything else got to there. And I think that's a little bit why I feel kind of... Get used to it. Like Abraham, like Isaac, like Jacob, like Peter and Paul and James, like Dr. Luther and Dr. Melanchthon and the reformers, like the pastors in Germany and the churches and the Christians in Germany in the 30s and 40s and 50s. Live in that tension and be okay in that tension because we are children of the most high first. And we have a heavenly country waiting for us someday. So between now and receiving that heavenly country, we live by faith in Christ. And I think that as we become more comfortable in that tension, as just kind of the way it is, and we're not going back to the way it was, we're more reliant on Christ, more effective missionaries into the world, and more peaceful in our soul. So what do we do? I say we do what Jesus said. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That alone can transform the world, or at least it did 2017 years ago when a man named Jesus stood on a mount and said, I got a whole new way of living and understanding and it's rooted in something that's bigger than you and it's gonna be dangerous, it's gonna be radical, but trust me, trust me, your lives will be better here and now and when you're called home. So let's do that, huh? Let's pray for our enemies and for those who persecute us. Lord God, be with our enemies where their hearts are hardened towards violence and oppression and slavery and murder, power and corruption. We pray that you would pound those hardened hearts and make them pliable and malleable and that by your love and your grace that you would turn your enemies and our enemies to be friends and supporters of Jesus where there are plans being made in places that are dark, we pray that you would shine the light of your love on them and that with that light, all of the evil would be exposed. 
We pray for the persecution that goes on, the overt persecution that's painful in places like uh, Egypt and the Sudan and Somalia and, um, and pray that you would preserve Christians and that you would thwart those who persecute them. We pray for the subtle persecution in the West, Lord, for a persecution rooted in wealth and apathy, for the arrogance of uh, knowledge and how knowledge puffs up and how knowledge kind of moves in opposition to faith. We, we pray that faith would be restored where it is dim and that your church would be on the move. Pray for our own congregation, that you would hearten us and strengthen us throughout this summer. Probably not so we can get all political and all of those things. But even more so, Lord, that you would use our leaders in those city seats as ambassadors of your reconciliation and that our church's reputation would be that of service, of loving and caring for people, of being willing to speak to enemies and abide persecution when it comes. To that end, Lord, we live in that tension because you did and because you reside with us. We in you and you in us. Bless our dear nation, our state, our county, our city, and all of us as citizens of this great place. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.